The clerk will call the roll. Thank you, by the way, engineering team. Alder Martin? Here. Palm? Here. Fair? Here. Rummel? Here. Skidmore? Here. Tierney? Here. Verveer? Here. Wood? Here. Sellers? Here. Aarons? Here. Arntzen? Here. Balde? Bidar Seeloff? Here. Carter? Present. Cheeks? Here. Furman? Here. Hall? Here. Harrington McKinney? Kemble is excused and King is excused. Mayor, we have quorum. Thank you. We have a quorum. First item on the agenda is a petition for an attachment from the town of Middleton to the city of Madison. And we have a registration on that. Um, oh, we got a new agenda. I'm dealing with an old one. Thank you. Okay, item number one. Sorry about that. I thought there was something wrong with this. Uh, item one, a, a welcome. Uh, Alderman Baldiff, would you please do the um, honors? Yep. So I think item number one is uh, a welcome remark by the mayor of uh, Carnifing. Carnifing is our newest uh, sister city. And so uh, since we were approved by the council about two and a half years ago, we've been engaged in an annual event. Uh, so this year, uh, about just four months ago, we got a new mayor elected for the city of Carnifin. And so uh, when we were celebrating our second year anniversary, we sent an invitation to him and a council member, uh, Suleiman Jamin. So what is going to happen is uh, the new mayor, I mean, I'll just say a couple of things before he even get there. He's uh, a very young guy. His name is uh, Talib Bensouda. Uh, he's just about 32 years old. And so he's the youngest mayor in Africa, basically. And the Carnifing, for example, 25% of our population lives in his municipality. So he has a couple of words to say with us. Uh, we have been having a series of meetings. Uh, around the city, uh, the university, Edgewood, and some other places just to, you know, uh, reach out, uh, discuss what uh, his issues are, but what he also has to offer for, uh, for, from his city. So, Mayor Bensuda, the mic is yours. Thank you. Yes, Mayor Bensuda, welcome, please. Good evening, um, Lord Mayor Soglin. Honorable councillors, uh, council staff, and uh, residents of the city of Madison. My name is Talib Bensouda. I am the mayor of Carnifing Municipal Council in the smiling coast of Africa, which is called the Gambia. And I am honored to be able to speak to you and very happy about this relationship. This is the Madison uh, Carnifing sister city relationship. We come from a place with many contrasts. We have some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. At the same time, our waste collection system is controlled by donkey carts. So Gambia is a very interesting place. We have a dynamic youth population in my municipality. 60% of the people are below the ages of 30. So it is a very interesting place. My few days here have been very interesting. We've learned a lot. I've met with your waste management system, uh, the directors involved, also GIS and planning. 
And already we have a lot of new ideas we can take back to Gambia. At the same time, Gambia has a lot to offer in terms of tourism and culture. We've already offered to host many of your directors and councillors. Uh, we would be very happy for you to visit. We believe Madison is a model city we could build our city on. As you may know, Gambia, or Kanifeng, has a lot of issues, of course. But then again, we have a new council. We just came out of 22 years of dictatorship. And I myself couldn't make it last year because I was one of the activists fighting the dictator. As soon as the opportunity came, uh, I took the opportunity to run for mayor. And this makes me the youngest politician in my country and one of the youngest mayors in Africa, if not the youngest. So I guess I'm here to say we are welcoming everyone to, the Madis, uh, to Gambia, to Kanifing, and I have traveled eight hours, two days, just to say hello. <laughs> I thank you so much. All right, thank you. Um, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to have you and the council here, and I look forward to our meeting tomorrow. Right. So the other thing is, uh, I don't know if you're going to quote it, but if people have, may have questions about canifing or something, yeah, sure. uh, you should be available to answer if there are any. Sure. Any questions? Well, I'm going to start out with just a couple. Could you remind us the population yeah. of the Gambia and the population of canifing? Uh, so the Gami is 2 million people, uh, Kanifing is 500,000 people. So we are the most populous municipality and the most densely populated because uh, our, our land mass is less than 5% of the country's land mass and we host 25% of the population. And with a quarter of the population, yeah. does that give you the appropriate influence within the national government? Yeah. I would like to think so, because <laughs> um, uh, pretty much um, the president, of course, is the biggest politician, and then the, the second person with the most amount of votes is myself. Very so good. So I would like to think so. Yeah. Alderman Aarons. Yeah. What you mentioned um, uh, waste as what, what what is the major issue that the city is or your municipality is uh, facing at this point? Um, so when we came into office, we found limited uh, waste management vehicles or waste management system in place. This is because of many years of mismanagement and lack of investment in that area. So our waste management is dominated by the informal sector. This is why I talked about the donkey cart problem. So it's a guy and a donkey and a cart, and they pretty much go residences and collecting waste. Uh, it's pretty efficient. The only issue is that they... They're animals and can't make it to the landfill, so they literally just dump the waste in the closest deserted area. So um, our municipal police were disbanded by the former president because he was like a, a god in the country. He could do whatever he wanted. So we're just uh, rebuilding the municipal police. Uh, this is to improve the enforcement to ensure that we keep our environment clean. <laughs> so one of my campaign promises or my top priority was environmental management and this is um, to bring about a waste management system and a sustainable one for that matter. Yeah. Alderman McKinney. Thank you. You, um, you answered uh, my question and that was absolutely one. Um, how many um, uh, 
people were vying for your uh, position, and so uh, you were one of how many candidates. And my second question was really, what was your platform? And you answered that. And my third question is, how did you um, get your message to the people? What was that strategy? I mean, um, how did you move through the country to get your message and strong message because you came out on the successful side. So share that. I'm really interested. Okay. So the first question is I was running against, I believe, nine candidates, nine, and I was the youngest. The oldest was probably 70. Um, I run, ran on the platform of one of the biggest political parties, which is uh, the United Democratic Party. Um, the election wasn't too tough, but the primaries was hell on earth. <laughs> there was a lot of mudslinging, no different from your elections. Um, <laughs> um, the, the final question, I believe, sorry, was... Um, yeah, so um, we use similar methods to yours. Uh, Samu was telling me about his experience. Uh, it's predominantly door-to-door, -door, uh, very intimate. Um, also, we use obviously traditional forms of media, mass media, um, TV, radio, and Facebook. Facebook actually is transforming the way my country is communicating, and WhatsApp messengers. So we have a lot of political groups on WhatsApp. So we we take out messages through that through those platforms, pretty much. Yeah. Very good. Thank you very much. Thank you. And again, so much, I look man. forward to our meeting tomorrow. Thank you. Okay, item number two, a petition received in the Madison Clerk's Office on a, to attach a parcel from the town of Middleton to the city of Madison. Did we have a registration? Yeah. No. Okay, no registration on that. If there's no objection, it will be referred for introduction. No objection? Very good. Uh, early public comment, we don't have anybody. And so Alderman Baldiv. Uh, oh, excuse sorry. me, Alderman Martin. Alderman uh, Martin, just want to move agenda item 47 out of order. Yes. Is there is that the suspension to take up 47? Is there a second? Second. Motion and a second on suspension. All those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. Item 47 is before us. Alderman Martin. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Um, uh, this is a proclamation or a resolution proclaiming Monday, October 8th, as, uh, 2018, as Indigenous Peoples' Day in Madison, Wisconsin. Is that a motion? Yes. Is there second a second? second. Motion and a second. <laughs> Now I go. <laughs> Whereas Indigenous Peoples Day was first proposed in 1977 by a delegation of Native Nations to the United Nations Sponsored International Conference on Discrimination Against Indigenous Populations in the Americas, and whereas Indigenous Peoples Day began in commemoration of 500 years of survival and renewal of Indigenous nations in the face of genocide, colonization, political, religious, and cultural repression, 
And whereas the city of Madison recognizes that the indigenous peoples of this hemisphere that would later become known as the Americas have lived on these lands since time immemorial, and the city recognizes that the fact that Madison is built upon the homelands of the indigenous people of this region, and whereas this indigenous culture was disrupted and destroyed in Madison as in all parts of this hemisphere, and yet indigenous people survive and continue to resist against current injustices and oppression, and whereas the city of Madison will continue to support indigenous nations' struggles for social and environmental justice, religious freedom and tribal sovereignty, equity, and whereas the city of Madison honors our country's indigenous roots and history and seeks with this celebration to bring greater understanding to the people of Madison regarding indigenous cultures and the enormous contributions they have made and continue to make to our nation and the city of Madison. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the mayor and the common council of the city of Madison do hereby affirm and proclaim Monday, October 8th, 2018 as Indigenous Peoples Day in Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you. There is two registrations on the site item. Michael Gilpin, supporting wishing to speak, followed by Aaron Birdbear also. Michael? Hi everybody, my name is Michael Gilpin. I am an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I am a sophomore. I am here representing Wong Cheek. Wong Cheek is one of the several Native American student organizations on campus. I am the co-president of traditional affairs for Wong Cheek. I would just like to say how much Indigenous Peoples Day means to me and the other Native American students on campus. I and the other Native American students on campus are very thankful for being able to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day Holding a leadership position on campus, it's a lot of fun planning and participating in events geared to celebrating being indigenous. It's such a great feeling to be able to celebrate our culture, heritage, and way of life on campus on Indigenous Peoples Day. Thank you so much. Thank you. And can I present? Oh, you want? Yeah, I was going to present this. Please. And Aaron. You want to come and join and then do your presentation? Thank you very much. Honey Chata High P. Aaron Berber Gahini Gaide. That's right, English must be this newcomer's English. Um, I first greeted you in the Hotunk language, which people have uh, spoken here for time immemorial. I then switched to Ojibwe because I thought maybe, you know, if you don't know Ho-Chunk, whose ancestral home we're in, um, you'll know the common trade language of the Western Great Lakes, Ojibwe, how humans used to communicate with one another as a common form of, of, of language across different cultures. Uh, you didn't know that, so I said, maybe there's these new French people that have kind of made their way into the yeah. Western Great Lakes. 
I think we have like Père Duchesne and Lake Butte More and lots of Flambeau. We, we know the French were here for some time. But no, it's the newest arrivals, uh, these, these people called the United States of America, have joined us. So 98.6% of the human story of the space we're sitting in, 98.6%, has been spoken in a language other than English. English is just a really recent addition to the Western Great Lakes as a way of communicating, a way of naming things, a way of understanding the world around us. So archaeological site DA413, the fluted points near Picnic Point on Wonkshakomik, uh, which is what the Ho-Chunk language is for Lake Mendota, um, the Ho-Chunk called Wonkshakomikla, uh, just a beautiful lake. And archaeological site DA413 establishes that humans have lived on this lake shore for 12,000 years. So we're just continuing this beautiful uh, notion of community together tonight that humans have done for, for thousands and thousands of years. But I'm speaking on Indigenous Peoples Day. And in 2005, I was teaching a course, American Indian Studies 150, and we had the students write to Alderman Austin King, uh, forwarding the idea of Indigenous Peoples Day, which was passed in 2005 uh, here by this Common Council. And then in 2006 and 2010, and then two more resolutions were passed at the Dane County level in 2007 and 2015. Um, so it's been really wonderful to see uh, in the 21st century the legislative bodies here of Madison and Dane County recognizing the deep humanity of this space. And instead of just the colonial veneer, the colonial narrative that celebrates 1848 forward, but more so the full humanity of this space. And so I thank you so much for honoring the students' wishes, uh, honoring the students' research and forwarding this idea uh, that celebrates the entire humanity of this space and not just this new thing we call English and this new society called the United States of America here in Dejope, uh, also known as Four Lakes, uh, which is now known as Madison, Wisconsin. So thank you very much. Thank you. What's, what's the course? We do questions. Well, that's so, could you tell us more about the course? Yeah, it was, uh, it's called American Indian Studies 150, and it's just uh, contemporary issues in American Indian Studies. And it was a transition course helping new Native American students coming to UW-Madison to transition to our community. And so we had kind of a, a curriculum based on helping them think about um, what does a good tribal citizen need to know? Um, what would a good... U.S. citizen needs to know. We probably need to know civics. We need to know a little bit of our history. We need to know a little bit of our intellectual, social, and cultural achievements. And we'd also want to celebrate um, the deep humanity of this space, um, which likely should be a World Heritage Site, um, since we have a unique culture who made monumental arts and landscape arts. Um, every single point of this location on planet Earth fulfills a World Heritage Site criteria. If you look at uh, just what was created here over thousands of years, uh, when we encounter the kind of the effigy mound and mound building culture of this space. So we wanted students to really celebrate the intellectual, social, and cultural achievements of Native Americans, both through research and through meeting the faculty and staff at UW Madison. So American Indian Studies 150. You, you spoke in the past tense. Is the course still offered? It's not offered currently. Um, I'm no longer teaching it. I'm an assistant dean now in the School of Education at UW Madison, and I no longer work for the College of Letters and Science. Um, Thank you. Any yeah. other questions? Yes. Oh, we got another question. Oh, question for me. Yeah. Okay. So, what percentage of the uh, Native Americans would you say speak uh, your languages and understand basically your culture here? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, Ninety-eight percent of the Native American population in Wisconsin is English monolingual. Not because we don't value our languages, but up until 1975, American Indian language and culture was criminalized by U.S. policy. 
with the explicit goal to eradicate and destroy all Native American language and culture on this continent. So it wasn't until 1975 when the Indian Self-Determination and Educational Assistance Act passes that those policies called termination and assimilation are formally ended. So my grandparents were all forced to be removed from their families and put into off-reservation boarding schools away from their families from ages 7, seven 11 onward, um, and removed from their families for years in order to eradicate our languages. So unfortunately, that insidious language policy is incredibly impactful and effective in that 98% uh, of the population of indigenous people here in the state are English monolingual. So uh, w there's a lot of language revitalization efforts underway. The Ho-Chunk Nation have uh, Head Start uh, Ho-Chunk language immersion programs. The Ojibwe have Waduka Dotting and Ojibwe language immersion school. So there's a movement to help revitalize Native American languages. But the Native American Languages Act was only passed in 1990 when I was in college. Mm. So uh, and it's chronically underfunded. Um, so it's not like there's a ton of resources to help Native Americans revitalize their languages at this time. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I got a personal question. Sure. Uh, I'm right now reading this book, Plain Americans, America's Game by Adrian Burgot, which is uh, specifically written about the emergence of Latinos in baseball. But... At several points in the book, he talks about Native Americans and what they encountered in sports. Um, is there a body of work that, that covers, I mean, most people know the story of Jim Thorpe, but that's just a very tiny piece of it. Is, is, is there literature and work that, that covers that topic? Yeah. There is literature uh, that covers various sports in specific uh, sport kind of re history, but not one that comprehensively covers all of these newfangled American sports. Um, you, know, I, you know, World Series? Does the world really play baseball? I don't know. Um, football should be oblong handball. Um, so it's interesting, these new sports that are created with this society in the United States. And so there are some books that focus on uh, that And the best book, I think, about American football uh, is The Real All-Americans by Sally Jenkins. And it examines the emergence and the kind of influence and innovation of the Carlisle Indian Boarding School that has on collegiate football. In December 19, 1896, Wisconsin traveled, University of Wisconsin traveled to play one of the first football games at nighttime in, in Chicago under the lights. And who did they play? The Carlisle Indian Boarding School. And who won? Carlisle Indian Boarding School, uh, much to the shock of the powerhouse of the West, Wisconsin. So, uh, and Jonas Matoxen from Oneida up in, up in uh, Grip by Green Bay uh, was the first person to score in that contest. So The Real All-Americans by Sally Jenkins is a wonderful kind of uh, looking into how Native Americans kind of were innovators in American football. And it's no surprise in 1903 that the first Native American student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison is William Milton Bain, famous Indian football player. So our first Native American student at our institution is a football recruit, largely because we lost the Carlisle Indian Boarding School in 1896. Very good. Uh, Alderman Rummel. Thank you. Well, what a gift that you're here to join us today. Thank you. Um, I want to also kind of, kind of do a little sidestep. Uh, one of our upcoming agenda items is about... Um, a Confederate monument at Forest Hill Cemetery and its removal, and there was an appeal of the Landmarks Commission. It had been prior uh, mentioned that there's also burial mounds at Forest Hill, and I'm wondering if you share any advice about how to honor those sites in that place as well as around the city, you know, any um, 
I think we're, we follow state rules, but just anything that you would like to share about that. Yeah, you know, the incredible mound, uh, conical, linear, and effigy mound landscape is just extraordinarily special and unique to this place on planet Earth. And so these monumental arts are just something really to behold. And the one rule the Ho-Chunk have for us uh, is please don't walk on them. Right? We'd hope that we wouldn't walk on these monumental arts that they built. They've also worked closely with various institutions and agencies. They have a tribal historic preservation office that kind of gives guidelines for stewardship of effigy mounds. Uh, lately, myself and a few others, we won a Madison Community Foundation grant to develop signage out in town uh, to help explain what this landscape means. Um, the Ho-Chunk have a way of being that limits cultural sharing with non-Ho-Chunk, and that includes me. I'm a member of the Mandan, Hadatsa, and Diné nations, so I'm not Ho-Chunk. Um, so we've been working with the Ho-Chunk for the last year on a process of developing emerging themes about what stories would they like to share with the non-Ho-Chunk about this space and about the effigy mounds in particular. So the Ho-Chunk working group we've convened for the last year just came out with themes last week. So we're really excited to think about how we're going to share, short, share stories of this space um, to help us non-Ho-Chunk understand in ways that Ho-Chunk understand it currently. So we follow what's called a decolonizing methodologies process, meaning that all the effort that the Ho-Chunk do shouldn't just be to benefit us, that the entire work that they put forth should also benefit them. And so we help them build collective community knowledge about this space as they tell stories with each other of how, what their families know of Dejope what they know of Four Lakes, what they know of Madison. And then from all these stories they've collected over the last year, what stories do they want to share with us, the non-Ho-Chunk, since they do have a little limits on sharing with non-Ho-Chunk. So I think we're in the midst of a project right now where we're trying to design some information for the city of Madison um, about understanding this landscape. Um, the Ho-Chunk already have provided a little bit of guidance for our institution and other institutions for stewardship of the effigy mounds. And one could contact the Heritage Division within the Ho-Chunk Nation, and they could provide kind of information on stewardship guidelines if you're interested in those. So uh, Forest Hill Cemetery, um, Professor Bill Cronin on our campus developed a really wonderful website about how to engage that particular spot in our town, um, how you can kind of read the mounds in Forest Hill. And so with a bunch of graduate students, uh, our preeminent historian, Bill Cronin, William Cronin, has made an incredible resource for understanding Forest Hill Cemetery in, in particular. So I hope that helps. Uh, you can read the Forest Hill Cemetery kind of guidelines to engaging that space. Um, you can communicate with the Ho-Chunk Nation's Heritage Division, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, or you could wait a little longer for the signage that will be forthcoming in the next year or two that's being developed right now with the Ho-Chunk Nation. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think we've exhausted our question for now. Thank you very much. To the, uh, I forgot, to, to, to all the other people to, here tonight, uh, there's a way to say a formal thank you in Ho-Chunk. Uh, it's wa'inagenapshana. So wa'inagenapshana to all of you for supporting uh, indigenous peoples and uh, the revitalization of indigenous cultures here in the United States today. So thank you very much. Thank you. I'm not going to try. Um, on the question, discussion? Seeing none, on adoption, all those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. Uh, consent, Alderwoman Balda. Alderwoman? Pardon? 
You see, all the women burned it. I no idea. Last time I checked, I was dead. <laughs> I firmly deny it. Alderman, Alderman Walton. Uh, it was good that time so much. Did you sign something? All right, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, very good. So at this point, uh, a consent agenda will be moved with recommended action listed for each item except number one, items which have registrants wishing to speak, item number two, uh, items which require an extraordinary roll call, vote, and are not included on the consent agenda. May unanimous agenda, by unanimous consent. Item number three, items which all the posing or all the posings have uh, separated out of discussions, debate, purposes. Um, so the so we've got public hearings on three and four. And okay, so agenda items number three to four are public hearing items. Uh, the following items are extraordinary, extra majority items, extra majority votes uh, items will be recorded as unanimous votes unless a roll call or exclusion is requested. Item number 20, uh, legislative file number 53201, authorizing the issuance of $86 million general obligation promissory notes, uh, series 2018A, uh, and $12,655,000 taxable general obligatory obligation promissory notes. Item number 21, legislative file number 53202, authorizing the issuance of $10 million dollars general obligation obligation fund corporate purpose bond series 2018 C of the city of Madison Wisconsin providing the details thereof establishing interest rates thereon and levying taxes there therefore agenda items part of the consent agenda with additional recommendation as noted item number 17 legislative file number 53319 uh, amending section uh, 15.02 subsection 49, uh, 15.02 subsection 56 of the Madison General Ordinance by changing the pooling locations for Ward 49 from Hope Madison, uh, 437 North Francis Street to Gordon Dining and Event Center, 770 West Dayton Street, and changing the polling locations for Ward 56 from Gordon Commons, 717 West Johnson Street to Celery Hall. 821 West Johnson Street. Items introduced from the floor uh, for referral. Uh, legislative file number 53362, authorizing uh, a second amendment to uh, rest 1700664, authorizing the execution of a development agreement with Gava Feed Milk LLC to include a recorded version of uh, CSM number 14664 and modify the permitted locations of a private storm sewer over city-owned land. Uh, item request, requested action uh, referred to Finance Committee, Board of Public Works. So these are the uh, items that are excluded. Thank you for the motion. So right now we have separation on three and four. Are there any other items for separation? Seeing none on the motion. All, uh, let me explain. Once we vote on this, all the recommendations as adopted 
uh, for each item will be in effect, except for three and four, and obviously one and two we've already acted on. On the motion, then. All those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. At this time, we'll declare a hearing open on item three, an appeal of the Landmarks Commission decision uh, regarding an exterior alteration. The first registration on this item, uh, wishing to speak, neither supporting or opposing, Stuart Levitan, who will be followed by Keith Christensen, who will be followed by David Blaska. Do we do a motion now? Or motion? It doesn't matter. You can be on either side of this issue or the podium. <laughs> uh, a motion to adopt would be in order, Alderman Baldeth. All right, so I'll move item number three. Thank you. Is there a second? There is. Thank you. I am here to defend the honor of the Landmarks Commission and explain why we had no choice but to reject the Certificate of Appropriateness. Section 4118-1A of the new Historic Preservation Ordinance required us to review this request under the Secretary of the Interior's Standards for Rehabilitation. As Amy Scanlon's exceptional staff report explains so well, removing the large marker would violate five of the Secretary's nine standards. Standard three. Each property will be recognized as a physical record of its time, place, and use. Changes that create a false sense of historical development will not be undertaken. Confederate rest is as it was in 1909 when the stone grave markers were installed. Removing the marker will create a false sense of historical development contrary to the Secretary's standards. Standard four, changes to a property that have acquired historic significance in their own right will be retained and preserved. The soldiers were buried in 1862, Ms. Waterman in 1897, the large marker installed in 1906, the headstones in 1909, 69 years before the cemetery was designated a landmark site. All the elements from the stone perimeter wall in have historic significance. Removing them will violate the standard. Standard five, distinctive materials, features, finishes, and construction techniques or examples of craftsmanship that characterize a property will be preserved, will be preserved. 142 names hand-chiseled on a marble monument. This is craftsmanship that characterizes the gravestones found in a cemetery of the Victorian era. Standard eight. Archaeological resources will be protected and preserved in place. If such resources must be disturbed, mitigation measures will be undertaken. As you just discussed, and as you know, Forest Hill is a designated landmark cemetery that contains Native American mounds. That is why, in addition to uh, preparing an interpretive sign on Confederate rest, Landmarks Commission wants to prepare an interpretive sign on the mounds. And that is why you should be aware that additional levels of review and approval will be necessary before you remove the marker. Standard nine, new additions, exterior alterations, or related new construction will not destroy historic or related new materials will not destroy historic materials, features, and spatial relationships that characterize the property. Uh, to state the obvious, removing an object with historical significance from a landmark site will destroy historic features that characterize the property. The Landmarks Commission got it right. We interpreted the Secretary's standards as they're written. We did our job. Having said that, 
There are white supremacists in our federal government and Klansmen in our streets. Things that might have been acceptable before Charlottesville are no longer okay. Rebel soldiers who fought to preserve slavery should have their graves respected, but they are not entitled to a large marble monument in Madison's Municipal Cemetery. I don't know what legal basis you have for reversing the commission, but I hope you can find one and order the monument's removal. Thank you. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Good evening. I hadn't planned on speaking tonight, so this is just sort of serendipity that this is an issue that I feel I have a strong opinion about. Um, Confederate monuments uh, relate specifically to their glorification of the Confederacy is something that I think is a, a, a symptom of a greater problem, uh, which is often that our history is taught to us poorly. Uh, I was actually in, I went to school not 25 miles from here, and when we were taught about the Civil War, they, they specifically mentioned states' rights, and they emphasized states' rights uh, over slavery. They didn't mentioned that the only state's right that was really relevant in the war was slavery. So it's, it's just a question of, uh, of, of how we view our history accurately or inaccurately, and I think it's important to view it accurately. And uh, a glorification monument of Confederate soldiers, I think, is a, is a, is a step towards viewing it inaccurately. Uh, that's all I have. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next registration is from David Blaska. Um, folks, you know, I thought it was uh, appropriate that you heard from the uh, speaker on indigenous peoples, and he talked about preserving the history of Forest Hills, and I would ask that you do the same thing here. Um, you know, I don't, it's hard to see what is glorifying out of that stone. It's, uh, it's a gravestone. And, you know, we've all seen the photographs and the pictures of removing uh, generals astride a rearing horse with a sword outstretched uh, in the center of town. It's not in the center of town. It's in a little quiet corner of an old cemetery. It's a gravestone. That's why there are 140 names on it. I don't know how you can make that stone much smaller uh, and still get 140 names on it. I don't know what's glorifying about it. Uh, the, aside from the names, it says erected in loving memory by the United Daughters of the Confederacy to Alice Whiting Waterman and, quote-unquote, her boys. That's the lady who tended those graves for 40 years, at first by herself and later with the help of people like General Lucius Fairchild, who became governor of Wisconsin and lost an arm at Gettysburg. It's more than anyone here has done. It's more than I have done to fight slavery. And he was an unreconstructed Reconstructionist. He was very angry when the Republican Party in 1877 gave up the fight for Reconstruction and yielded to the South. And he objected to that. Alice Waterman died in 1897. She was living in the home of Major Frank Oakley on North Carroll Street, I presume, in the Knob Hill section, or the Mansion Hill section of, of town. It was her dream that there be a permanent marker because the second generation of wooden boards was weathered out, <clears throat> illegible, after all those Wisconsin winters. 
So Captain Oakley joined forces with another captain, Union veteran, Captain Hugh Lewis, who also lost an arm at Gettysburg. And they said to their southern, former southern adversaries, you got a cemetery up here. Let's get some money up here and put a permanent stone to fulfill Mrs. Waterman's dream. And in 1906, it was erected. I've got a little article here from the uh, Wisconsin State Journal. I kind of like to get that out among people here. Brass bands, it doesn't say, but I'm presuming strawberries and ice cream. It was in June of 1906, conducted by the Grand Army of the Republic which was the Union Veterans Association. General Fairchild had been the national commandant of that in the 1880s. Captain uh, Oakley was, the, uh, was his adjutant. That's why he carried that forward. I don't know how Madison's been damaged by this stone. I don't know of any rallies, Klan rallies or otherwise, that have been held there. I sure wasn't invited. I wouldn't have gone. I would have disrupted it. Um, I have ancestors who fought on the Union side, and we honor them, too. If this was a monument that's, that talked about unsung valor or unsung heroes and, and uh, fought with valor, that monument, that plaque was removed without uh, any, I don't think, any uh, or much objection from the people of Madison. So I'm just wondering now, if you're going to remove that stone, you got the forklift out there, why not take the, there's a larger stone out there, and it's got one name on it, Charles Van Hyes, president of the University of Wisconsin in the progressive era, a eugenicist, a racist, much bigger stone. Throw that one on the flatbed truck, too. Take that out. Because he was much more influential than these poor guys. Who, and they fought for slavery. Let's, let's be honest about it. The word that, you, that I think people here object to is not united, not daughters, but confederacy. I've got to think, though, that many of those daughters put their 20 cents, their dollar bill into the envelope to get their relatives' names on a permanent stone where there was none. State Journal hasn't been very good on this issue, but they've got it wrong. In one respect, they say the stone is sitting on some of the graves. It should be moved. No, that's where the stone was put. Those gravestones weren't there. As, as Stu has said, they weren't put up until 1909. People who solicited money for those grave, that, that, that stone that you're talking about had no idea that the Congress would authorize money for individual gravestones. That was beyond their dreams. That was the stone. So I hope that you honor history. Thank you very much. Thank you. First thing I want to do is just I want to clarify the motion. Thank you. I want to clarify the motion. The motion is to adopt, which means to adopt the appeal. And if that happens, then the vote is to remove uh, the stone. So if you want it removed, vote aye. If you do not want it removed, vote no. Um, we're still in the public hearings part. Any questions of any of the registrants? We have another registrant. Yeah. What? Uh, we, we, in the shuffle of the two different agendas, we'll, we'll come back. He's. No, he registered. Uh, are you, what, what, which item were you registered on? On, on this one. Oh, because it's, 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 it's that it's item number one. 
That's the confusion. Please come up then. Sorry about that. We thought that, that we thought you're on the middle tonight. No. Well, it's quite all right then. Thank you. Okay. Okay. I thought I misread. Okay. Never mind. We thank you. Thank you, Marcia. We wait. We're straight. Okay. I'm asking the Common Council to override the Landmarks Commission denial of the certification of appropriateness. The Confederate cenotaph should be preserved, but moved from Forest Hill. Um, as Stuart Levertan said, the Landmarks decision focused on the cenotaph's landmark status and not on the context of its placement or its negative meaning today. That is the role of the Common Council. We are dealing the Landmarks Commission 50-year standard says that monuments more than 50 years old are considered historical and changes to them affect the historical nature of a site. But we are dealing with an over 50-year-old monument now because our nation chose not to deal with monuments to racism, white supremacy, and the Confederacy until recently. Now is the time. The cenotaph that was placed in our park was part of a monuments movement by pro-Confederate organization in the early 1900s. This organization was part of the effort to reestablish white supremacist governments in the states of the former Confederacy. Among the goals of that movement was to rewrite the history of the Civil War, to deny the centrality of race-based slavery to the Confederate cause. In Madison, the monument was erected under the canard of honoring war dead. European-American Union veterans took part in the 1906 dedication of the Confederate Cenotaph in Forest Hill and in a memorial ceremonies afterward. While this looked like a reconciliation between veterans of the North and South, the action excluded African-American veterans and ignored the ongoing racist terrorism and disenfranchisement in the South. Landmarks Commission Stu Levitan reminded us that World War II German POWs were interned in Wisconsin. Some died of disease and injury and are buried here. After World War II, we never would have allowed Nazi sympathizers from Germany to erect at their burial site an additional monument that even hinted at support of Nazism. That is essentially what happened at the Confederate rest area in our Forest Hill Cemetery. Members of the Landmark Commission who voted to deny the COA cited the need to keep Confederate rest area in the condition it existed in 1906 in order to facilitate historical discussions. Nearby historical institutions are more appropriate and effective settings for this discussion. The State Historical Society possibly could display the cenotaph alongside the other Civil War items it houses and is in a much better position to encourage discussions of context than in a public cemetery. Traditionally, cenotaphs are placed in the home communities of those whose remains are buried elsewhere. If local historical institutions do not accept the cenotaph, I suggest we offer it to a Confederate military cemetery in Louisiana, Alabama, or Tennessee, the home states of the Confederate POWs buried in Madison. That is where the cenotaph should have been placed in 1906. Madison has a serious problem with racial inequities. We're struggling to do better. Among the ways we can do better is to dismantle the infrastructure and symbols of racism in our community. The cenotaph is one of the Madison's subtle symbols of racism. 
We have taken a long time and put a lot of energy into this issue of monuments for soldiers who fought to set up a separate nation founded on race-based slavery. Alder Arvina Martin reminded us we have not dealt with the destruction of Native American burial mounds to construct Forest Hill Cemetery. As Alder Harrington McKinney asked, where are the monuments, where are the markers to the victims of lynching? Our community is ready to be done with this issue and to devote our energy to other issues. To quote General and President Ulysses Grant, the Confederate soldiers fought so long and valiantly and had suffered so much for a cause that though that cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which a people ever fought and one for which there was the least excuse. I do not question, however, the sincerity of the great masses of those who oppose us. These fallen Confederate soldiers deserve to be memorialized with individual gravestones and a well-maintained burial ground at Forest Hills Cemetery. With the removal of the cenotaph, Forest Hills Confederate Rest Area will be almost identical to its adjacent Union Rest Area. I'm available to answer questions. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any questions of any of the registrants? Alderman Skidmore? Sue? Excuse me, uh, Mr. Levitan. A uh, couple questions for you. Thanks for your articulation of the landmarks deliberation based on the federal uh, landmarks designation. Uh, I think that was very thorough. A question is, uh, uh, would you know if this body does decide to overturn the landmarks decision, how that would be appealed? Uh, would that go to the SHPO, uh, State, Historic, excuse me, State Historic Preservation Officer? First, first, let me say that I, I, I want to give credit to Amy Scantlin, whose staff report formed the basis of my comments, and, and her intellectual honesty and rigor, I think, should, should be commended on the record. Um, well, there, there, there are two levels of, there are two legal questions there. One is under your ordinance, under 4120, I think, as I read 4120, you have to find that we misread one of our standards in in our action and our standard was enforcing the federal standards. So you've got so if you if you if you somehow get over the 4120 requirement that you find that we made a mistake on something, then you're still dealing with the state historic preservation officer and, and potentially some federal issues. Because, as I say, um, we've, we've got the mounds there that that you, you just can't go. Even if you vote tonight to overturn us, or reverse us, you can't just go and get a permit to bring in some heavy machinery. It's, there's a lot more that needs to be done. Uh, perhaps the city attorney has um, uh, investigated this, but um, I know there are a couple of legal hurdles that, that need to be addressed. Uh, so just as a clarification, what you're saying is that uh, by making a recommendation not to remove the cenotaph, you're following the city rules, which would theoretically allow us to do that. I got lost. Hmm. No, I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you, you gave five, re five reasons why uh, uh, that this violates federal regulations, correct? Right. But, the, the, but, but the, in doing so, you're following the city rules. Right, because the, the city ordinance incorporates the federal standard. Okay, so then, therefore, the city is still violating their own ordinance by, by theoretically violating five standards of federal federal rules. That's the part I'm trying to understand. The landmarks, the preservation planners report and the landmarks decision was that there are five standard, five of the nine 
secretary's standards would be violated by removing the marker. Right. And our ordinance 4118-1A incorporates those federal standards. I don't know if the, I don't know if the secretary. I think part of your question is: Does the secretary of the interior or somebody on behalf of the federal government have jurisdiction to seek enforce to seek to prevent violation of that standard? I, I don't know the answer. To that that's that's why you pay, uh, Mr. May. Um, well, of course, I trust you. I, I, I don't know the answer, Aldrin. Thank you. Any other questions? If not, thank you very much. Thank you. Aldrin. Martinson. Um, thank you. Um, and, and again, this, this was sort of the, the first thing I did after being sworn in as Alder here. And um, you, you all are much more familiar with this issue than I. But, um, I mean, really what the appeal is to do is to reinstate the decision um, that the council made prior to sending this over to the Landmarks Commission for the certificate of appropriateness. I don't quarrel with what the Landmarks Commission did. I mean, they're looking at it through a historic preservation lens, which is, which is their job. But our lens is a different one. Our lens is what's the best public policy for this city. Um, Stewart asked, posed the question, what standards um, we could um, you, would justify reversing the Landmarks Commission. And if you look under um, 4118.2, um, which has the standards, um, A says whether the structures of such architectural or historic significance that its demolition or removal would be detrimental to the public interest oops, and contrary to the general welfare of the people of the city and the state. And I submit that it's the removal of this is not con detrimental to the public interest and contrary to the general welfare of people of Madison. And I'll, I'll elaborate on that in just a moment. But also um, subsection F states whether retention of the structure would promote the general welfare of the people of the city and the state by encouraging study of American history, architecture, design, or developing an understanding of American culture and heritage. And, and I would submit that its retention does not promote the general welfare of the people of this um, city and the state. And it's, and it's really the reason is because, I mean, that, you know, if, if I, I assume people here have been there and looked at it. There are the grave, the Union gravestones. There are the Confederate soldier gravestones next to it. And then there's this monument, this big monument, um, which um, references the Confederacy. Um, and and that's not some. It's not disrespecting the people who are buried in the graves to remove this independent central path or um, whatever the proper, proper word is. And I mean this. The thing, I, the biggest issue this city faces and has faced for really since I've been involved in, in public policy issues is the issue of racial equity and inclusiveness. We, we, here we do a lot of things well, and a lot of things are going well for us here, but not that part. And, and it, it's always striking when you get information and various statistics to just see how poorly we do. And it, and it, it doesn't, it, you know, it's hard to imagine why it is. I think we struggle with why we don't do better. But removing this is a step in that direction. You have people whose um, ancestors are buried in this cemetery, people of color, and um, this is not inclusive. This is not welcoming. Um, this is not something that, um, that draws our city together and, and helps us um, to, to reach out and include um, 
the entire the entirety of our population. And so this even this this council's job is to do what's in the best interest, best public policy for the city of Madison. And here it's to remove um, this monument consistent with the council's prior action. I can spoke with Eric Knapp earlier today and the Historical Society and Veterans Museum are still interested in it. And, you know, that's that's an appropriate location for people coming to look at this. And it's in a more appropriate context than if then where, you know, the, the public cemetery where who you know people go to um, respect people buried there and they they this they, they 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 shouldn't have to be faced with this and so it's in the interest of the city that it be removed and that's why I appealed it thank you Alderman Rommel thank you um, and thanks to Alder Arnson for his really practically the only Older that could do this as well as the parks who is the applicant and so I asked you to adopt the appeal and I am one of a few alders who has been um, part of this whole process for over a year when um, when the mayor first um, ordered the removal of the plaque and asked the, th the parks EOC and landmarks commission to review some options of which we then dutifully had a lot of meetings and discussion and two of the committees voted uh, one of the committees voted to, to remove it and two had conditions for keeping it but then it came here and the council said that we believe that the public interest it would frustrate the public interest to keep the monument and so we then made that finding so then the parks commission being our dutiful owner appeal applied to do a legal request for a certificate, which is now why we're here again. Some of you might be wondering, didn't we go through this? And yes, we did, but you know, we asked to have it done legally, and that's what Parks um, Division submitted, and that's what started this again. And so the last time I was at Landmarks and we discussed it, I was in the sole no vote every single time, which is fine. And, and like others have said, I don't hold it against the Landmarks Commission. I, don't, I think they looked at the standards and, and thought that they were upholding them. I mean, I look at the ordinance, and when I see the Secretary of Interior standards, um, which Mr. Levinhan read number three, and one part of it says, changes that create a false sense of historical development, such as adding conjectural features or elements from other historic properties will not be undertaken. And at the last meeting, I said, you know, if the standards, if we'd had a landmark district back in the day of 1906 and applied these standards if they existed, which, of course, is a total ahistorical supposition, I understand. But you could argue that it wouldn't have fit the standards of the Secretary of Interior because it is a false sense of historical development when we whitewash history. And I guess I really think that this body would understand that and does understand that, that we do respect the dead who served on all, both sides of the Civil War. We're not trying to erase their history, but we're trying to um, make repairs and do reparations for the damage done from this history. And while I grant this particular uh, monument is not one of those big, um, fabulous things you'll see in a central park of a big city, 
it still was part of that 1920s era movement to erect signs and monuments all across the United States. There was a campaign to rewrite history of which this was one example. And so having said that, I do believe that it would frustrate the public interest to keep this monument up. I grant, and I think it's a separate question of how we should properly deal with this, the individual markers that are slowly eroding. I don't think we should try to solve that right now. I agree that it's something that will need to be looked at over time. And there's one other element that as I've been sitting through this and wear my landmarks hat, I think if somebody comes in with a new gigantic um, marker, does that have to get a certificate of appropriateness for every new uh, gravestone that comes? And I don't truly really think that's the intent of the landmarks ordinance to review all new additions to a historic district. And I have like communicated, the city attorney communicated this kind of contradictory element to our ordinance and I have asked them to change that and we're working, we're working on that, right? Right. And um, <laughs> so I think the point is like any marker over 50 years old, say it's your family and they decide they want to change it. Say, you know, somebody else, they move, some, they move somebody in, I don't know, just speculate with me. They would have to go before the Landmarks Commission, even just a regular family monument or gravestone. And is that what we want? We want a certificate of appropriateness for every new um, person that dies or, or any monument gets changed? I don't really think that's what the intent of the ordinance is. So I think that's another element we haven't really discussed, but having served on this committee dutifully, for over six years, and I deal with windows. Windows are one of the harder things. When you had asked me if I would be an alder and serve on this committee, I didn't know how much of my time would be taken up with historic windows. But please don't add grave markers to it. I mean, that would just be, we would just say yes, but it would be a waste. Anyway, I'm now rambling. But anyway, thank you so much for uh, hearing me, and please uh, vote yes to adopt the appeal. Thank you. Alder, Alderman Balda. I Please go ahead. No. You didn't want to be recognized at this point? Uh, except to make a motion that we vote on it. I wasn't asking. We've got a motion. Okay. We do have a motion. Right. Yep. So, but then the fact that you gave me the mic, I'll just say thank you for introducing this. Uh, I think the young guy at the back there, his name I think is Keith you know, gave a very short but very precise statement about this. And so I hope we don't have to spend any more time trying to deliberate on this. Uh, this is a foregone conclusion. America is moving forward. We don't need to be reminded that we are less of a people at some point. Uh, every uh, disease person at the graveyard has a stone to, 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 to identify them. That is what is needed in this country, not big monument to say, you know, we are part of something. Uh, if you want to read the history, go to the uh, historical sites and do some research there. Uh, I would also ask for a roll call that everybody be recorded when we, 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 we vote. Uh, we need to move forward. Whatever we do with this, somebody will come back in a year or so and want us to make it bigger or smaller or something. Let's get rid of it and move forward. Thank you. Thank you. Alderman Skidmore. Thank you. Um, uh, Stu, 
Levitan alluded that the city attorney might have more information, and I assume he's ready to answer the question that I asked. He said there's more work to be done. What happens now? Is there an appeal to this since it is a federal historic site and five of the nine standards are being violated? And, you know, if this is brought forward. Well, on some of this, I'm going to defer to Assistant City Attorney John Strange. My review of the ordinance suggests that the reference to the Interior Department, or I'm sorry, the reference to the Secretary of Interior is in the section on new construction or exterior alteration, which is not the section we're talking about here. This was a section under demolition or removal, which I don't see has that reference to the Secretary of the Interior standards. Maybe they're incorporated some other way, but I think the standards we're looking at are under Section 2, which at least as I see it doesn't incorporate anything from the Secretary of the Interior. Beyond what happens today, once the council makes its decision, it seems to me the only appeal is if somebody wanted to try and take that decision to circuit court under some sort of certiorari to say that you abused your discretion or something like that. And, John, if you're available, can you just chime in on that way in the back? Sure. Yes, in terms of a legal appeal, I think the only appeal would be to circuit court. Now, there may be if the council were to reverse the decision and the certificate of appropriateness to remove the cenotaph would, in effect, be granted. There may be additional things that the city has to do in order to do that through the State Historic Preservation Office. But in terms of an actual appeal, there would not be an appeal of this decision unless it were in circuit court, like Mike said. Further questions? Thank you. Alderman Martin. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. I want to thank Alderman Arntzen for bringing forth this appeal. I think it's important, as people have been stating, for a sense of what's right and a sense of coming to grips with our past and how it affects racial equity and equality here in Madison, here, now, in 2018. I also have to say that I'm really bothered by the idea of comparing the cultural works of a society in that of mounds created by my ancestors to propaganda of racists. It's not the same thing. And I think it's important that we recognize that those are two different things. And it's an important distinction to make. And I also kind of see this as attempts that have happened in the past for other arguments, for other controversies, to try to drive wedges between communities of color. And that's not okay. It's not an oppression Olympics, first of all. And I think it's important that these things kind of stand on their own and not in the shadow of mounds created here. Thank you. Thank you. Alderman Zellers. I really appreciated City Attorney 
um, May pointing out um, that the Secretary of the Interior standards does fall under the new construction, um, not under the demolition or removal portion of um, our ordinance, because I was going to have a hard time going against landmarks saying that there was anything wrong with their interpretation um, based upon, um, you know, the, the comments related to the Secretary of Interior standards. But I don't see that um, as being one of the elements for demolition. And it seems to me that um, under those criteria, um, there's a lot more uh, judgment involved that um, that makes me comfortable with uh, voting um, to um, adopt the appeal. So I just I just wanted to make that comment because I do tend to go back to standards and following um, standards, as you have heard me say, um, for other uh, items that we voted on. So thank you. Alderman Bedar. Thank you. I'll just quickly say I hope you know we can we can vote to to um, support this. I appreciate the work of the uh, landmarks um, committee and think that you know they did their job. We did their purview. It is up to us to do our work in representing our city and in starting to intentionally dismantle what's a history of white supremacy that has been left in our city. And if we are not bold enough and courageous enough to um, talk about white supremacy now, I don't know who is ever going to be that bold and, 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 and want to do it. So um, we're a, a diverse council um, that represents um, so many perspectives from our, our communities who have not had an opportunity to be um, in the positions we are, so um, whether we are directly impacted as one of the people who have suffered this oppression or whether we are a real ally, we should really take a step to dismantle this type of history of um, supremacy and just not kind of keep emphasizing the claims of um, the fact that these were really uh, built for from the goodness of the heart of some, you know, nice daughters um, who, who wanted to see um, their fathers buried in a in nice place. So, thank you. Alderman Hall. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. I just wanted to express my heartfelt uh, thanks and, and gratitude to uh, my colleagues for uh, calling out nonsense and for calling out the pervasive ideas that allow us to make comparisons that uh, are not fair. Uh, it is my hope that um, under the leadership of my colleagues who are doing this important and difficult work that, you know, someday they won't have to tell us because hopefully we'll be woke enough to figure it out on our own. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Thank you. Alderman McKinney. Thank you very much, um, Mr. Mayor. And um, I was not going to speak on this, but I, I think I, I must. Um, when this first came before our council, I did spend some time out at the cemetery because I wanted to know how it impacted me. Um, of the 142 chiseled names, and that was mentioned tonight, there are actually more tombstones than the 142 names. Um, our past um, does direct our future, and for me, it is a very painful 
remembrance of our past. Um, how we look at that from a historical uh, viewpoint, I can understand that. But as what it represents, um, if the Landmark Commission wanted, and I looked at the, um, the directory for the cemetery, and it needs updating. If people want to know uh, what the significance of those uh, stones are, then they could read it. Uh, but to have that representation there disturbs me, and it grieves me that we are struggling with um, whether it should be removed or not. Um, and when I spent time out there, I was grieving. And to have that semblance there, um, it does remind me of the past. And I would hope that the council will stand boldly and say that this is not who we are. Alderman Carter. Yes, thank you. I just want to say that I, I believe that the removal of this item and the relocation to either museum is the appropriate place for discussion. You don't have discussion in a cemetery. You have reflection and you have memories. And this item brings up memories that are not so pleasant in our history. And I'm going to support this appeal. And I would hope that the removal of this item is carefully done so that it can be relocated in either of the museums. Thank you. All in cheeks. Um, <clears throat> um, I'm certainly going to support this. And I, I just want to acknowledge what I, I'm confident that my colleagues on the council are thinking of, um, and, and I'll just say out loud, is that undoubtedly this is the right thing to do, um, and yet there are no victory laps after this, right? This isn't the sort of thing that we'll go pat our backs on for having changed inequality in our city. We will continue to be a city with a tremendous amount of work in front of us to um, shrink inequality between um, haves and have-nots and between blacks and whites, between marginalized communities and, and uh, those that are not in, in this city. And so for as you know, important and, and, and uh, right as this decision is, um, this council certainly recognizes that the work in front of us uh, is still yet to be done to make this city um, equitable in a way that would live up to our, our values. Uh, no one else is in the queue. Is there any objection to my speaking from the chair? I, I bought this book tonight because I was going to read a paragraph or two, but I'm going to spare you that and basically uh, share with you the, the, the point, which is baseball is America's game. And Major League Baseball is given credit for what happened when Jackie Robinson uh, uh, became a Major League Baseball player and what that did in terms of changing uh, our views and attitudes about race in this country. 
there's very little said about the history of Major League Baseball prior to 1942, 1945, 1947. If you go and look at the Hall of Fame and you look at those who were inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame from that era from the 1880s through the 1940s, virtually every one of those men were avid racists. The tale of, of race in America is precisely that. It is not history. What happened from 1870 until the advent of the Civil Rights Movement is a historical story that is not told. And part of it was the propaganda that we saw in this monument being placed in the cemetery by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And their title is the United Daughters of the Confederacy. The word Confederacy is not what's obnoxious. It's United Daughters of the Confederacy. And what they did in regards to spreading a false narrative because the racism that led to slavery was not erased by the Civil War and in fact uh, the end of the Civil War actually in many ways tragically spread it. Um, whatever happens I think the most important thing is that we use this moment and I say this to the people who keep writing into my office um, that you please understand that our culture that our athletics that our politics are tainted by this and that it is our obligation to use this as an opportunity to correct that narrative and that false history, whether it was in film like Birth of a Nation or if it was in the management of professional sports. And, and I, I can just tell you that in this particular book, Playing America's Game, is probably the strongest documented history I have ever seen of the nature of racism and it covers not just African Americans the focus of the book Latinos but also Native Americans and uh, I think that for those who like myself love the game of baseball there has to be an understanding that the foundation of the game was based on race. And it was actually uh, the racialization of baseball that perpetuated some of the most horrible racialness in this country, some of which still prevail today. 
No one else is in the queue. You ask for a roll call vote. All those in favor, aye. Opposed, no. The clerk will call the roll. Alder Martin? Aye. Aye. Palm? Aye. Aye. Fair? Aye. Aye. Rummel? Aye. Aye. <laughs> Skidmore? No. No. Tierney? Aye. Aye. Verveer? No. No. Wood? Aye. Aye. Sellers? Aye. Aye. Aarons? Aye. Aye. Arnson? Aye. Aye. Balde? Aye. Aye. Bidar Seeloff? Aye. Aye. Carter? Aye. Cheeks? Aye. Aye. Furman? Aye. Aye. Hall? Aye. Aye. Harrington McKinney? Aye. Aye. And Kemlin King are excused. So that's two no's and 16 ayes. 16 ayes, two no's. The motion carries. Thank you. The next item before us is to declare a public hearing open on item 5, the 2019 executive capital budget. The four, I think. Four. I said four. I said Alderwoman. <laughs> uh, public hearing on item four. There are no registrations. We will not close the public hearing, but we will refer this matter to when? Dave Schmidicki, please. November. To the, the second to the budget meeting in November? November 13th. Could I have that motion, please? Thank you. Is there a second? Motion and a second uh, on the question of adoption. Discussion? All those in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. Thank you. Is there a second? There is. All those in favor, aye. Opposed, no. Motion carries. Good night. <laughs>